I'm Rob Kirkup. Welcome to How Haunted, a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the scariest places on the planet. In episode 53, we head back to one of the creepiest counties in England and once again wander the ancient corridors, climb the historic towers and look for the many, many ghosts that lurk here in the castles of England's most northern county. This week, we ask once again, just how haunted are the castles of Northumberland? Listener discretion is advised, as each episode of How Haunted will feature gruesome tales, horrific happenings, bloody murder, and ghosts. So many ghosts. Listen on if you dare. Northumberland has 70 castles, which is the most of any county in England. They have almost all seen unimaginable bloodshed and suffering, especially when you consider the constant threat of invasion they faced during the Anglo-Scottish Wars, due to their close proximity to Scotland. Considering this, it's hardly surprising that so many of them are believed to be home to former residents, those willing and those held captive here, who remain here in death. Last week, we began a tour of some of the most frightening fortifications in the county, and this week we conclude our two-part special by exploring some more of the scary castles to be found here, including arguably the best known of all of Northumberland's castles. Walkworth Castle The first recorded mention of the village of Walkworth was in 737 AD, when the church and village were given to the abbot and monks of Lindisfarne at the order of Seawolf, the King of Northumbria. The first castle at Walkworth, a Motton Bailey structure in wood, was constructed in around 1139 by Prince Henry of Scotland, son of King David I of Scotland, who became Earl of Northumberland. It was built on a high defensive mound at one side of a peninsula of land formed by the Curvin River Cocot, with the village and river crossing protected by the castle. In 1158, King Henry I granted the castle to Roger Fitz Eustace. The Scots invaded Walworth in 1173 and then again in 1174 and the weakly constructed castle was all but destroyed. That second invasion occurred on Saturday the 13th of July 1174 and this proved to be the darkest day in the history of the village of Walworth. The villagers rushed to St Lawrence's church as it was made of stone and offered much more protection than the wooden castle. However, it would ultimately do them little good, as the Scots, under Duncan Earl of Fife, massacred the vast majority of the village. When the Scots left Walworth, 300 men, women and children lay dead. Walworth Castle remained in ruin until 1199, when it was rebuilt and expanded, and in the early 13th century was rebuilt in stone. In 1332, due to the Fitz Eustace's struggling financially to maintain the upkeep of the castle, it was passed on to Henry de Percy, Lord of Annick. It was with the Percy family that Walkworth Castle is primarily associated, and in particular, the dashing Northumbrian hero Harry Hotspur. The castle remained with, and was constantly improved by, the Percy family until 1569, when they sided against Elizabeth I and the rising of the North, and their estates were seized, once the rebellion plot was foiled. The castle was left empty and fell into disrepair, James I visited in 1617, and after seeing the carved Percy line in the stonework, he claimed that this lion holds up this castle. In the 17th century, the castle was ruined further, 
as materials were taken from the castle to build local homes. In the mid-19th century, the third Duke of Northumberland began restoration of the castle. This was continued by the fourth Duke. In 1922, the high cost of maintenance led to the castle being handed to the Office of Works, later to become English Heritage, who still maintain this site today. The castle today is a magnificent site dominated by the massive medieval keep, with its tall central watchtower. This dark, atmospheric keep is home to several restless spirits. Tom Sherratt was a Yorkshire man, and he was believed to have played a role in the death of the 4th Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy. There was a riot held in protest of Percy's high taxes, and some of the rioters targeted Percy directly and killed him on the 28th of April 1489. Sherratt was believed to have dealt the final blow. Sherratt was arrested and he was taken to Walkworth Castle and placed in the oubliette to await his fate. The fifth Earl would be the person to decide Tom's punishment. However, he lived in the south and it was two years before he came to Walkworth. Tom was brought before the Earl, but he had not seen daylight in two years. He had not spoke to a soul and he was no longer even capable of remembering his own name or why he'd been locked away. The Earl took pity on Tom and decided to allow him to live in the castle so long as he earned his keep. Tom was put in the charge of the man who looked after the castle's hounds. Tom spent the rest of his days believing himself to be one of the dogs, living on all fours and howling for his meat along with the rest of the hounds. A number of people have reported hearing a howling in the keep, describing a sounding like a dog but almost human and otherworldly. This could well be the confused spirit of Tom Sherratt, still howling for food in death. A traditional grey lady haunts Walkworth Castle. She has been sighted in the castle and the swish of her dress has also been heard. It is believed that she is the ghost of Lady Eleanor Neville, wife of the second Earl of Northumberland. There have been a number of reported sightings of a young man wearing chainmail walking the castle walls and often standing vigil at the gate tower. Visitors have walked right past the man and commented on how good it is to have staff dressed in period costume, only for the young man to completely ignore them. They have later been told that there was no member of staff dressed up, and they have been privileged to witness the ghost of a knight who still protects Walkworth Castle. Some believe this to be the spirit of Harry Hotspur. It's a romantic thought, but the simple truth is that we will probably never know. A short way upstream of the castle on the banks of the River Coquet, hidden by trees, is a hermitage, an unusual building carved out of the limestone rock face. It contains a chapel, a dormitory, and a cell. The tiny chapel contains an effigy of a beautiful young woman, her hands raised in prayer. At her feet kneels a hermit, his hand pressed to his heart. This is Lady Isabel and the Hermit of Walkworth, and their story is one of Northumberland's most tragic tales. The story begins at a grand banquet held at Annick Castle. The Lord of Widrington was present with his daughter Isabel. One of Earl Percy's knights, Sir Bertram of Bothell, was very much in love with Isabel, and she loved him equally. At the feast, Sir Bertram promised Isabel that he would complete a feat of great courage to prove his love for her, and earn her hand in marriage. Shortly afterwards a border skirmish began, and Sir Bertram saw this as the perfect opportunity to complete his promise to Isabel. He fought with the courage and power of ten men, killing a great number of Scots before suffering a powerful blow to the head which took his helmet off, but it didn't kill him. Sir Bertram was taken to Walkworth Castle to recover, and a message was sent to Isabel, and she set out immediately to join her love. Isabel never made it, 
she was captured by the Scots and taken to a Scottish stronghold, where she was held prisoner. After a long recovery, Bertram set out to Isabel's home with his brother, but he was horrified to hear that she had left to go and see him weeks earlier. He knew she must have been taken prisoner, and swore he would not rest until he had rescued her. Bertram's brother agreed to help immediately, and the two of them decided to split up and make inquiries. After many weeks he was beginning to lose hope, when he heard from a monk that a Scottish lord was holding a pretty young girl captive at his castle. With this as his only lead, he rode to the castle, and hid in a nearby cave with a good view of the castle entrance. The castle was an impregnable fortress, and Sir Bertram knew that if he tried to fight his way into the castle, he would surely be killed. He decided to be patient, and wait and find out for definite that this was where Isabel was being held. He watched the castle intently for over three days. On the fourth night, he saw a Scottish clansman arrive at the castle, enter, and then leave shortly afterwards with a young woman. It was Isabel. Despite his lack of sleep and food, Sir Bertram, fueled by his love, ran over to the Scot who was helping Isabel onto the back of his horse, and with one mighty blow, Sir Bertram took the Scottish clansman's head clean from his neck. Isabel screamed out in horror, and this was the last sound Isabel would ever make, as the horse was frightened by her scream and threw her onto the ground below. Her head struck a rock, cracking her skull. She was killed in an instant. Sir Bertram looked down at the woman he loved, lying dead in a pool of blood. Next to her was a Scottish clansman's head. However, it wasn't a Scottish clansman at all, it was a face he recognised. It was the face of his own brother. His brother had heard word that Isabel was being held at the castle, and he was in disguise to rescue her. Bertram lay on the ground, next to Isabel's dead body, and his decapitated brother. He lay as if he was dead himself. He was paralysed with grief, and he was in a state of shock. Once he recovered enough to head home, he gave away all of his money and land to the poor, and he sought permission from Earl Percy to build himself a humble dwelling to see out his days alone. He built the hermitage with his own bare hands, and he spent the rest of his life in solitude, never uttering one word until his dying breath. A servant from Walkworth Castle brought food to the hermit every day, and one particularly cold winter morning, the boy found the frail old hermit hunched over a small fire which had almost gone out. The boy said he would go for some more firewood, but as he was about to leave, Bertram grabbed his hand and pulled him close. He seemed to be trying to say something, but Bertram had not said a single word in over twenty years. Isabel, he finally managed to say, and with that he took his final breath and died in the boy's arms. The inscription Sir Bertram carved above the hermitage door is a lasting reminder to the guilt and sadness that he endured for the last twenty years of his life. Translated it reads, My tears have been my meat, night and day. Sir Bertram's tragic ghost has been seen at the hermitage knelt in prayer. He has also been seen wandering the banks of the river close by, head bowed as if deep in thought. There have reportedly been sights of a knight in full battle armour at the hermitage, believed to be the spectral incarnation of the younger, trouble-free Sir Bertram. Visitors to the Hermitage have commonly experienced moments of sadness, melancholy and nausea. Others have suddenly experienced bouts of panic and dread. Annick Castle Annick is Northumberland's county town, and unquestionably one of the prettiest towns in all of England. In fact, Annick has come out on top of Country Life magazine's Best Place to Live in Britain annual feature on multiple occasions. Annick is a town steeped in history, 
and it shows as you explore the narrow medieval back streets, the cobbled roads and the huge 15th century tower gate which gives entrance to the main street. Anik is best known for its magnificent castle which dates back to 1096. It was the seat of the Percy family, the original kings in the north, and it's now home to the Duke of Northumberland. It is without doubt the most impressive medieval castle in northern England, and the second largest inhabited castle in the country, behind Windsor Castle. Visitor numbers to the castle have understandably soared since the turn of the 21st century, when it was chosen to portray a Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry in the Harry Potter films. Despite the idyllic setting in the tranquil heart of the Northumbrian countryside, Anik isn't without its own dark legend. Franik was once home to its very own vampire. The tale was first recorded by William of Newburgh Priory in his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, a chronicle of English history from 1066 until 1098, the year of his death. The work actually predates the existence of the word vampire by over 500 years. Instead, the creature being referred to by the Latin word sanguisua, meaning bloodsucker. Legend has it that a Yorkshire man, who had lived a dishonest life and wishing to distance himself from both his enemies in the law, headed north and found himself in Anik, where he secured himself a job serving the lord of the castle. He wed a local girl, however he suspected she was having an affair, so he laid a trap to find her for himself if it was true. He told her that he was going on a journey, which would take him away for several days, but he returned to his home at the castle after dark, and he hid on a beam in the chamber he shared with his wife, overlooking their marriage bed. Sadly he was proven right, when a young man from the town climbed into bed alongside his wife. Seeing his wife in the throes of passion with another man, caused him to lose concentration and he fell from the beam, landing heavily on the ground next to where they were lay. The man fled, but his wife helped her husband to his feet, acting as if nothing had happened. When he came to, he demanded her to explain her adultery, and he threatened punishment. However, she retorted, Explain yourself, my lord, and told him that he was talking nonsense, which was attributed to a sickness that had caused him to act so irrationally, accuse her of something that he'd simply imagined, and ultimately fall. She called for the local priest, demanding her husband confess his sins, and receive the Christian Eucharist, so he would no longer have such wicked thoughts. He refused. Shaken by the fall, he retired to bed to rest, so he could deal with the situation the following day. However, for him, the following day would never come, as he died that very night. He was laid to rest with a Christian burial, but the man's corpse was far from at rest. For in the nights that followed, he was actually seen walking around the town, causing a foul stench wherever he went. He would attack anyone who should have the misfortune to cross his path, and dogs throughout the town would howl all night long. Many believed them to be under the dead man's spell. Livestock would be found dead nightly, appearing to have been torn apart by some kind of beast. In the weeks that followed, every house in Anik was filled with disease and death, as a plague spread throughout the town, and there was no doubt as to what was the cause. It was the man rising from his grave every night. Before long the town of Anik, which had once been heavily populated, was almost like a ghost town, as most, whom had escaped death, had gathered their belongings and fled to another part of the country. On the first Palm Sunday following the death of the man and the reign of terror that had followed, two brothers who had lost their father to the plague decided to take action and rid Anik of this monster once and for all. Knowing the priest was busy hosting a feast at his vicarage, they headed to the cemetery, each clutch and a spade, and they found the grave of the dead man. 
They expected to have to dig deep into the ground, but the soil had recently been disturbed and it didn't take them long to find the coffin. Opening the coffin lid, the man didn't look like he had been there for months. He hadn't even begun to decay, and he had blood all around his mouth. One of the brothers struck the body with his spade with great force, and as the blade pierced the flesh, blood spurted out in all directions. The brothers lifted the carcass from the grave and dragged it outside of the town boundary, where they constructed a funeral pyre to burn this monster once and for all. However, one brother pointed out that the body would not burn unless the heart was removed. They both started striking the body repeatedly with savage blows from their spades, and one reached inside the mangled corpse and pulled out the heart, throwing it into the fire. This was followed by the body that crackled and hissed as the flames consumed it. By now, some of the villagers had come to see what was going on, horrified by what greeted them. The brothers, who were both covered in blood and gore, calmed the crowd, explaining that this was the only way to rid the town of the curse that had beset it. It appeared the brothers were right, as from that day the nightly horror stopped. The stench that had hung over the town faded, and life returned to normal. The Anik Vampire isn't the only worthwhile tale associated with the town, as there is a pub on Narrowgate called the Dirty Bottles. The building dates from the 17th century, and in the 18th century the innkeeper died suddenly while placing bottles in the window of the inn. His widow claimed that whoever attempted to remove the bottles would be cursed, and would too die. The bottles have never been touched since and remain to this day sealed between two window panes, undisturbed and covered in over 200 years worth of dust and cobwebs. Bambra Castle The magnificent and much photographed Bambra Castle dominates the Northumbrian coastline for miles around. It is unquestionably one of the most imposing castles left standing in Great Britain, and it has been used in a number of films and television shows, most recently in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It is widely believed that Bambra Castle is the legendary joyous guard. Sir Thomas Mallory wrote of the adventures of King Arthur in his 15th century work, Mort to Arthur. This place is Sir Lancelot's castle here, on the Northumbrian coast. Historical records prove that the site on which the castle stands now was first occupied by the Celts, who called it Dingaroy. However, some historians believe that the Romans were also here. This site became a fortification in 547 AD, when King Ida made it the capital of his kingdom, doubtless chosen because of the high ground, the rocky outcrop, and the protection that the North Sea would offer. Many kings were crowned here in the years that followed. Ida's grandson, Elifrith, succeeded and gave the castle to his wife, Beba. It was from this that the castle was given the name Bebabra, later to become Bambra, as we know it today. In the 7th century, Bambra was conquered and fell into the hands of King Edwin. Edwin brought a Roman missionary to Bambra to preach Christianity in the local lands. Edwin's successor, King Oswald, set up a monastery on Lindisfarne, bringing with him a number of monks from Iona. Northumberland lived in peace under him for many years, until Oswald was murdered by a pagan king named Penda. Penda returned King Oswald's body to Bambra in three pieces. His head and one of his hands were separated from the body. His head and his hand were embalmed and were kept in the castle, with his body being given a Christian burial in sacred ground. During the 8th century, King Oswald's head vanished. It is believed that it was stolen, never to be returned, but some believe that the head was taken up to heaven by God himself, due to Oswald being such a holy man. In 993, the Vikings invaded and destroyed Bambra Castle. It then suffered attack again by the Norsemen in 1015. Not long after this attack, the hand of King Oswald was stolen, 
it had been kept in a silver casket in St Peter's Chapel. The castle was rebuilt in stone in the 11th century and in 1272 the grand castle we see standing today was completed. By the 17th century the castle had become run down and it was restored by Lord Crewe. In 1894 it was bought by Lord Armstrong and the castle remains in the Armstrong family to this very day. Bamborough Castle has the longest and bloodiest history of all the castles in Northumberland, so it comes as no surprise to find out that Bamborough has a number of resident ghosts. Bamborough's most famous ghost is that of the Green Lady. In the early 15th century, a young woman named Jane was sent by her impoverished family to the castle to beg for food. She pleaded to the castle guards, who invited her into the castle grounds and then abused her. They refused to allow her to see the Lord. They pushed her out of the castle grounds. Weak from hunger, she fell down the castle steps and fell to her death. She had been cradling a baby in her arms, her child, who also died in the fall. Jane's ghost is seen from the green within the grounds, descending a staircase from a postern gate, then she falls, accompanied by a scream. Visitors have rushed to this young lady's aid, unable to find a trace of Jane or her baby. She has become known as the Green Lady, due to the colour of the cloak that she wears. The Pink Lady is another tragic female spirit that resides at Bamborough Castle. Dating back to the 8th century, the king did not approve of his daughter Suda, and he sent the young man overseas, forbidding him from returning for 10 years. The couple were very much in love, and this was dreadful news to them both, but they promised they would wait until he would return to Bamborough and then they would be wed. The king forbid messengers from travelling between them, and eventually he told his daughter that word had reached him, that the young man had met somebody else abroad and married them. The princess's world crashed around her in that instant. Being apart from her true love had been hard, but she was safe in the knowledge that he would return to her. But now that had been taken from her. The king arranged for the castle seamstress to make her a beautiful new dress in her favourite colour, pink. Upon its completion, her father presented it to her, in the hope that it may take her mind off the young man who had betrayed her. She dressed herself and walked out onto the castle battlements, and without a second thought, she threw herself over to her death below. Several years later, the young man returned, eager to see his beautiful princess. He was unmarried. The pink lady walks the older parts of the castle. She then walks down to the beach and looks out to sea, waiting for her love. The keep of the castle is said to be haunted by a fully armoured medieval knight. He has been seen walking the halls, accompanied by the clanking of his armour. The ghost of an Elizabethan naval gunner has been seen in the Armstrong Museum. A piano has been heard playing itself, and the ghosts of children have been heard and seen running and playing in the corridors, often turning light switches off and on. The castle was restored in the 18th century by Dr John Sharp, and his spectral figure has been seen walking slowly around the castle, appearing to still care for the building in death. In 2007 I spoke to castle staff, and I was told that there had been three sightings in that same year of a tall, cloaked figure. On each occasion, the figure was followed by a member of staff, who were keen to understand if the apparently lost visitor required help. But on each occasion, the mysterious man would go through a door around a corner, and when the member of staff followed a second behind, they found that they had just vanished. The figure was twice seen in the King's Hall, and once in the Cross Hall porch. It isn't just the castle that's haunted, Unusual things happen on the beach at Bamborough. Archaeological excavations that were conducted between 1998 and 2007 revealed an Anglo-Saxon burial ground dating back 1400 years. This contained the remains of around 110 men, women and children. 
This might offer an explanation for the terrifying encounters that have taken place on the sand dunes at the beach at Bambra, mostly in the years before there was any awareness of bodies lying below the sand. When Roman Polanski's Macbeth was being filmed at the castle, some extras were enjoying the beautiful beach at Bambra when they spotted something crawling through the sand. On closer inspection, it was a dismembered human hand. They thought it was some kind of impressive special effect, but it quickly dawned on them that it wasn't. In the 1980s, a school trip visited Bambra and they walked along the beach. A fog began to roll in from the sea, so the teacher told everybody to hold hands. A girl at the back of this human chain let out a scream. She had turned to see whose hand she was holding, and found that she was holding a hacked-off human hand, which vanished the moment she began to scream and cry for help. There have also been dozens of reports of black shadows, seen moving swiftly through the sand dunes. At Bambra Lighthouse, a single female voice has been heard singing in a strange tongue. Some people dismiss it as the roar of the sea or the wind, but other people who have heard it have been convinced that it is much more. Little is known of who this may be, or what language is being sung, but it adds to the intrigue of a wonderful, mysterious, magnificent place. Bambra Castle was once home to a king and queen and their two children, a daughter named Margaret and a son named Child Wind. When he reached adulthood, Prince Child Wind set off from Bambra to travel the world and seek his fortune. Sadly, soon after he set sail and left his family behind, his mother passed away. The king mourned his wife, for he loved her dearly. But one day when he was out on a hunt, he met a lady and fell in love with her at first sight. After a short courtship, he decided that she would be his new queen. Princess Margaret was understandably upset to hear of her father seeming to replace her mother, but she respected him as a king and knew it was not her place to question his actions. The big day arrived, and the royal wedding was a huge event, with well-wishers travelling from far and wide to try and catch a glimpse of the king and his new queen. As the wedding procession neared the castle, Princess Margaret was waiting to greet the new queen, her new mother. The new queen, however, was immediately jealous at the princess's youthful good looks, and when she overheard voices in the crowd talking about the princess's beauty, she decided there and then she was not going to stand for this. Unfortunately for Princess Margaret, her father had married a witch, and after Margaret retired to bed that night, a spell was cast upon her. I weird ye to be a laidly worm, and borrowed shall ye never be, until Child Wind, the king's own son, comes to the hue and thrice kiss thee, until the world comes to an end, borrowed shall ye never be. Laidly is a Northumbrian dialect word for loathly, meaning loathsome, and worm being from the Old English worm, which was a local word for dragon. When the princess's maidens came in to dress her the next morning, they were terrified to find her chamber destroyed by a terrifying dragon that wrapped itself around the bed. The dragon moved towards them, and they fled as quickly as their legs could carry them. The laidly worm escaped the castle, and crawled for seven miles until it reached the hue of Spindlestone Rock upon which it coiled itself, breathing its terrible breath and fire into the air. Word quickly spread, and before long the country knew of the terror of the laidly worm of Spindleston Hugh. The monster would spend day and night wrapped tightly around the hue, but when hunger drove the beast from its lair, it would kill and devour anything that it should come across. A local sage was consulted, who said that the worm was in reality the missing princess, and it was its hunger that drives her to such measures. Every day the milk of seven cows should be taken to the trough at the foot of the hue, and she will trouble the area no longer. However, the spell must be broken, 
and the only way to do this was to get word to her brother. Child Wind must return and save his sister, the princess. Eventually news reached Child Wind, who was still overseas, but he knew he must return immediately, rescue his sister, and find out who was responsible and deal out a suitable punishment. His crew numbered 33, and they all headed home to Northumberland to save the princess. They sailed in a boat that Child had had commissioned, made from wood from the rowan tree. As having travelled the world, he now knew that this had to be the work of a witch, and that rowan wood would repel evil magic. They neared the Bambra shoreline that Child Wind knew so well. However, the Queen sensed their return and used her magic to whip up a great storm, in which to batter the ship to ensure that the ship was sunk long before it reached land. However, with the storm being born of dark magic, the rowan wood ensured that no damage beset the vessel, and it continued onwards towards Bambra. The Queen was furious, and she ordered the castle guards that if Child Wind should approach the castle, he was to be restrained until she could speak to him and casting another spell, she summoned the Laidly Worm with a command to destroy the ship. The Laidly Worm appeared at the harbour, and as the ship came near, the worm unfolded its coils, and dipping into the sea, caught hold of her brother's ship, and slammed it off the rocks. Three times Child Wind urged his brave men to row on, but each time the Laidly Worm kept it at bay. Child Wind knew it was useless, so he ordered the ship to turn back from the beach at Bambra, the Queen thought he had given up the attempt, but he led the men along the coastline and landed safely at Buddle Bay. After touching down on dry land, he drew his sword, and followed by his men, they raced to cut down the Laidly Worm. However, the moment that Child Wind reached his homeland once more, the Queen's power over the Laidly Worm was broken. So when Child Wind confronted the terrifying beast, the Laidly Worm did not attack. Instead, just as he was about to raise his sword, the voice of his own sister Margaret came from its mouth. Oh, quit thy sword, and bend thy brow, and give me kisses three. For though I am a poisonous worm, no hurt I'll do to thee. Oh, quit thy sword, and bend thy brow, and give me kisses three. If I'm not one here the sun goes down, one shall I never be. Child Wind sheathed his sword, and kissed the Laidly Worm. However, nothing happened. He kissed it twice more, and the horrible Laidly Worm faded away and before him stood his sister, the most beautiful maiden in the land. Margaret knew that it was her new mother, the Queen, who had cursed her, so they both headed to the castle and confronted her. Child Wind touched her with a twig from a rowan tree. No sooner had he done so, she screamed and turned into a huge ugly toad, with bulging staring eyes and a horrible hiss. She croaked and she hissed, and then hopped away down the castle steps, never to be seen again. The Ballad of the Laidly Worm was first published in 1778 in a compilation of folk songs. It was said to have originally been written by Duncan Fraser in 1270, and transcribed by the Reverend Robert Lamb, Vicar of Norham. However, it's widely believed that Duncan Fraser never existed, and the tale was written solely by Lamb. The Red Caps I'd like to bring our time looking at the scariest castles in the county of Northumberland to a close with a warning. What about those otherworldly beings that are drawn not necessarily to one specific building, but roam around, being drawn to anywhere that blood has been spilt, meaning that castles are one of the most regular haunts? The Redcaps are a race of goblin-type creatures native to the folklore of Northumberland and the Scottish borders, unlike some of the mischievous and occasionally even helpful creatures that call Northumberland home, the Redcaps are one you want to hope you never have the misfortune to encounter. These short, stocky creatures look like old men, 
but possess superhuman strength and speed. They have long, sharp, pointed teeth, glowing red eyes, long fingers with nails as sharp as an eagle's talon, and long, dirty shoulder-length hair. They wear heavy iron boots, carry a pikestaff taller than they are in their left hand, and they have a blood-red cap on their head from which they take their name. Unlike many other creatures of legend, the red cap isn't solely tied to any one location. They are said to be attracted to the ruined castles and hill forts across the county, and inhabit the lowest reaches of these ancient monuments. For unknown reasons, they are especially drawn to those which have seen their fair share of bloodshed, death and suffering. The red caps lie in wait for those lone visitors to enter their home, and then use their incredible strength to throw enormous rocks at them. If one of these rocks finds their target, and they succeed in killing the innocent victim, then the red cap will soak his cap in the fresh blood of the recently deceased, to preserve its crimson colour. As the legend says that this enables the red cap to live forever, but if the cap was ever to dry out, the red cap would die. Red caps, much the same as other legendary creatures the world over, are known by many other names. In Northumberland, they have also been called red comb or bloody cap, for obvious reasons. Dunters are also written about in Northumberland, and Powry and the Scottish borders, and these are often mistakenly considered to be another name for the murderous red cap. However, 19th century folklorist William Henderson wrote of the Dunters and Powry as being different species altogether in his 1866 book Folklore of the Northern Counties of England and the Borders, no less bloodthirsty, but with completely different method for killing their human victims. Anyone misfortunate enough to enter their lair would hear a sound like a beating flax or bruised barley in the hollow of a stone, and this dreaded sound was the omen that death or misfortune would soon befall them. Henderson also speculated that redcaps, and the various iterations of them, reside in these ruined ancient monuments because they are the vengeful spirits of men and women sacrificed and their blood could be used to bathe the foundation stone for good fortune. There are only two ways to kill a redcap, should you be misfortunate enough to encounter one, and that is to either brand a crucifix or read aloud words from the Holy Bible. Either will cause the redcap to scream in horror before exploding into flames and disappearing. The only evidence that he was ever there will be one large single tooth left in his place. The most famous redcap story doesn't relate to Northumberland, but to Hermitage Castle in Newcastleton, just north of the border, and the nightmarish border noble William II de Souls, who was said to have possessed a redcap as a familiar. De Souls was a wizard and a practitioner of the dark arts, and his familiar, known as Robin Redcap, was much feared by the people of the area. De Souls and Robin Redcap reigned terror over the terrified locals, until they eventually rose up to overthrow him. Rendered immune to weapons and even hanging, De Souls was eventually dragged to the nearby Stone Circle of Ninestain Rig, a stone circle in the Scottish borders, where he was boiled alive in mould and lead. Robin Redcap is said to remain at Hermitage Castle to this day, loyally continuing his long dead master's malice. William De Souls in reality was imprisoned and died in Dumbarton Castle for his conspiracy against Robert the Bruce in 1320. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at, at @howhauntedpod, or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod, where you will see photos galore relating to the castles of Northumberland. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com, or you can email me at rob at how-haunted.com. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get yourself early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, the ghost stories and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the actual ghost hunt. You can also get yourself some How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you'd like to support the show but you aren't a fan of Patreon, why not donate £2 at buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information and links are in the podcast episode description. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out, we enter a castle dating back to 1093, standing on the site of 2,000 years of occupation. This Welsh fortress is home to at least 10 individual phantoms. These include a spectral soldier, a grey lady who is seen looking out of one of the towers at dusk, and a three metre tall giant. Let's find out all about these and much more next week when we visit Cardiff Castle. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? How Haunted?